Vacationing on Titan? Bring your umbrella. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. You may need a lot more than an umbrella if you're on Titan during a real downpour. We'll talk with two UCLA scientists whose model of the climate on Saturn's big moon predicts truly titanic storms happen much more frequently than previously thought. Bruce Betts has more about the upcoming total lunar eclipse that many of you will be able to see. We open by welcoming back my colleague Jason Davis. Jason is the Planetary Society's digital editor. He just wrote about plans to visit yet another of our solar system's ocean worlds. Jason, great piece that uh, you put in the Planetary Society blog. On January 11th, uh, you were laboring apparently under a misconception that I also had, but you have uh, disabused me of, I think that's the right term, <laughs> which which is that Enceladus might have been the better place to send something like the Europa Clipper. Uh, not necessarily? Yeah. So I think that uh, this misconception came from the fact that Cassini was sending us all these awesome pictures of the plumes coming from Enceladus. And there's evidence that they're linked directly to the subsurface ocean there. So if you want to sample what's in the ocean, why not just fly through those plumes and grab a nice sample and uh, and look it over? And Cassini did that um, to some regard. Um, Europa Clipper going to Europa kind of wants to do the same thing. They want to get some of that material that's coming from the ocean and take a look at it. To me, it made a lot of sense that you would want one of those big plumes like Enceladus has. But the problem is uh, we've looked for plumes on Europa and the evidence that they're there, at least like the way they are on Enceladus, is, is kind of hairy. It's kind of on the the edge of detectability. Hubble looked a couple times for these plumes, was really pushing the telescope's limits to the to the edge, and it thought it saw something. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. So, you know, the question of whether or not there are plumes like Enceladus is kind of hanging out there. And yes, like you, I thought, why are we sending it to Europa? Why don't we uh, send it out to Enceladus and, and grab some samples there? But it turns out that uh, Clipper, because of the extraordinary instruments it's going to be carrying, including these two mass spectrometers, shouldn't really be a problem? The mass spectrometer, there's this mass spectrometer called MassSpex, and what it can actually do is weigh uh, the amount of chemical compounds in any sample. And that's what you want to do when you want to see what's exactly in your, your ocean sample. Hubble, when it detected what it thought were plumes, it thought it was seeing about a thousand kilograms of material per minute coming off of Europa. Uh, mass specs can actually detect just one kilogram uh, of material per second. So uh, scientists are pretty sure there are plumes there. They just don't know how big they are. That's really the only outstanding question. And it turns out even if they're really, really faint, uh, mass specs will be able to get a sample of them. And in the event that there are no plumes at all, and we don't have any direct outgassing from the subsurface ocean, there's still another way that mass specs can actually see what's in the ocean. And that's that we've got all these cracks and fissures all over Europa. It, it's really compelling evidence that uh, some of that water from the subsurface ocean makes its way up to the surface, seeps out on, out of the cracks, onto the surface, and Jupiter's radiation then blasts it. And that's what turns into these rust-colored streaks through this, this oxidation process. 
And so during that process, a bunch of material actually gets blasted off of Europa. Uh, these same kind of particles from the ocean, or at least they, they used to be particles from the ocean and they've changed into some other stuff. Same deal. Mass specs can uh, sniff those out, kind of do some reverse engineering, figure out where they came from, what's in them, and still figure out what's in the ocean. So uh, really cool. Two different ways they can do it. And they're very confident that, yeah, this is no problem. They're going to be able to get it to work and, and answer this question. Remind us, if Clipper is able to do its job in the mid-2020s, is it going to be able to tell us that there is life in that vast ocean underneath the ice? So as much as we want to say, yes, it will find life, it looks like (laughs) even the best case scenario, it would come up just short of scientists being able to say definitively, yes, that's life. Now, the mission's main goal itself is to assess the habitability of Europa. So we want a, you know, a positive result in that case would be able to say, yes, the ocean very much is, um, is habitable. It looks like it could support life. Now, there are a couple signs that they would get from mass specs and combined with the rest of the instruments on the spacecraft that, yes, it does look like there might be something there. However, they probably wouldn't be able to say with certainty. So the two things they'd want to see would be organics. And alone, organics aren't an indicator of life. They're everywhere in the solar system, but they're kind of the building blocks of life. And then the second thing they would want to see would be some molecules that indicate something interesting is happening with these organics below the surface. And that'd be like methane, ammonia, hydrogen sulfide. And that would tell us that there's some process going on below the surface. So those two things, if they got a positive result, they'd be able to say, well, this really looks habitable. um, And it looks like something could be there. But as one of the scientists told me, then they're going to argue that result to death for the next 10 years. And, uh, (laughs) you know, probably won't be able to say with 100% certainty until we send a a lander mission there. Jason, it's a great piece. Available at planetary.org, was posted January 11th. No plumes, no problem. How Europa Clipper will analyze an icy moon's ocean. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. We're off to another ocean world now, an ocean of a very different sort on Titan. In one week, Hurricane Harvey dumped more than 40 inches, well over a meter of rain on Houston, Texas. No one had ever seen anything like it. But what if that kind of storm arrived almost annually? A computer model, based on the best data from the Cassini orbiter and the Huygens lander, says that is exactly what happens on Titan. Now granted, one titanic trip around the sun lasts nearly 30 of our puny years, but that kind of precipitation helps explain the amazingly Earth-like topography of Saturn's big cloud-shrouded moon. What would a thunderous rainstorm sound like there? How would drops of liquid methane feel as they struck your well-insulated spacesuit and helmet? These are among the questions I had for two authors of a paper published in Nature Geoscience last October. UCLA grad student Sean Falk was lead author of that work. It was a few days ago on a soggy Southern California day that I engaged Sean and his mentor, Jonathan Mitchell, in an online conversation. Jonathan is an associate professor of planetary science and principal investigator in UCLA's Titan Climate Modeling Research Group. Get ready to be immersed in science. Sean and Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, joining me on Planetary Radio uh, for this conversation about these uh, wicked storms that uh, you have modeled on Titan. You know, as we speak, Southern California is getting its first substantial rain in months. It's coming down pretty good. 
I've heard we might get a couple of centimeters or maybe three quarters of an inch of rain. How would that compare with one of these Titan downpours that your model has uh, shown uh, may very well be taking place on that cold moon? Well, this is really nothing, doesn't even really compare with uh, one of the great outburst storms that Titan experiences. Um, We've compared it to Hurricane Harvey sitting over the greater Houston area for a few (laughs) days and dumping feet of rain. You know, centimeters of rain can be quite a bit, especially over a burn scar following the, the wildfires. But we're lucky not to have anything like Hurricane Harvey over us right now. Yeah, thank goodness. And I don't want to make light of it because, of course, uh, those uh, denuded uh, hillsides are uh, in big trouble right now in Southern California. Absolutely. I, let's go back to Titan and let's start with the Cassini spacecraft, which I, it looks like it enabled the remarkable modeling that you guys have done. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the model that we've used has been well established thanks to observations from Cassini, uh, especially of the clouds um, using you know, the ISS and, and VIMS uh, instruments on the Cassini spacecraft, um, and also the, the, the Huygens probe landing and getting a temperature and pressure profiles, it really helped uh, get the model uh, to be where it's at today. And then now with this study, uh, we've been able to use, to leverage uh, observations of alluvial fans uh, using the radar instrument on Cassini to really compare to the extreme precipitation events that we've seen in the model so we can get a better um, understanding of the connections between the surface and the climate. I'm going to come back to those alluvial fans a little bit later in our conversation, but I was going to ask you next if the Huygens probe uh, assisted you with the modeling at all, and you just said, yeah, it sure did. Absolutely. None of this modeling really would have been possible without the constraints provided by Huygens and Cassini, especially Huygens was really good at getting, of course, in situ measurements very close to the surface. What's key for understanding the weather in the lower part of the atmosphere is how the temperature changes with altitude. And so getting that um, in situ measurement, even though it was only one, was really key to sort of grounding the modeling that we do. Can you remind us of that VIMS instrument that you mentioned? Is uh, It's an infrared instrument on uh, the Cassini orbiter, right? Yes, yeah. It's the visual infrared mapping spectrometer. Talk about this model. Uh, what kinds of factors had to go into creating it, and, and how complex is it? Is this something that has to run on some pretty powerful hardware? Well, I want to uh, start out by saying our colleague Juan Laura was really responsible for the initial development of the model. He put it together basically as a graduate student at uh, the University of Arizona, and we've been using it as our workhorse since then. I would call it something like uh, intermediate complexity. So there's a whole philosophy in understanding climate that comes from the Earth community that uses uh, a whole hierarchy of models, all the way from uh, very simple models that don't even have any physical dimensionality except for time, all the way up to comprehensive models that have vegetation cycles coupled in with the climate system, for instance. In our modeling, we focus on the sort of philosophy that simpler is better in the sense that the observations are really what ground us and keep us from going too far into sort of uh, just speculation, I guess you'd say. And so we've settled in on this intermediate complexity model that has really gotten us a long way in understanding both constraining the model uh, against the observations, primarily from Cassini, but also from ground-based observations, 
but also enables us to really dig into the model simulations and find how they're working, how the weather works, what are the controlling factors, and so forth. And we do run it on um, state-of-the-art hardware, although these intermediate models don't require you know, hundreds of CPUs to run on. We can run them on um, a handful, maybe 16, between 16 and 64 processors. And the advantage there is that the intermediate complexity models run fast compared to the more comprehensive ones. And so we can uh, test sensitivity to different parameters and boundary conditions. And that's the exploration that allows us to get a better understanding of how the physics works, the physics of these systems, um, the physics of the climate as a whole, and how it interacts with the surface. Is this model still a work in progress? I mean, we've heard on this program that a lot of that data from Cassini is uh, is still being worked on uh, and and revealed. Uh, yes, absolutely, and that's part of uh, what I'm completing my thesis work on is um, adding uh, specifically parameterizations of surface hydrology into the model. Uh, and so this is uh, adding surface runoff. So when the precipitation happens, that that rain has to go somewhere, um, and and it, it runs off into areas of lower elevation. Uh, and so using topography data that we've gotten from Cassini, uh, we can uh, determine if it rains in a given spot where that methane will flow um, after precipitation events. And then furthermore, you also have uh, infiltration uh, perhaps happening. Uh, we're not really sure of how quickly this is happening or if it's happening uh, to, a, to a very extensive degree. But this is something that we're going to allow in the model and, and see if we can constrain a little bit more. And then also once that, that methane uh, infiltration goes into the subsurface, then it could you know, flow horizontally in the subsurface as well, um, based off of topography and, and you know, how much uh, methane is, is in the subsurface. Um, and so we've basically uh, put in a sort of analog to a water table um, that we have you know, in the groundwater systems on Earth um, into this model for, for, for Titan. We're looking at that and we're developing that right now. And, and it's uh, so far leading to some pretty interesting results um, and seems to be important in the climate and weather of, of Titan. This really is remarkable. And the more you describe, I mean, like the existence of, if not a water table, perhaps a methane table on Titan, (laughs) the more it sounds like it resembles um, the systems that we're familiar with here on Earth. I mean, do you find that pretty striking? In some ways, it's very striking, but um, I've come to expect it at this point because there's been so many remarkable discoveries, especially from the Cassini-Huygens mission that make Titan look so familiar to us uh, relative to what we see on Earth. It's, it's really been a fun exploration. And at the same time, each of those instances that tell us that Titan is similar to Earth, Titan always has its own take on the physics. So, for instance, we have tropical uh, systems uh, or tropical climate along the equator on Earth, and that has to do with something called the Hadley cell or the overturning circulation in the tropics. On Titan, uh, because of the very, very strong influence of seasons, the equator ends up getting the dry subtropical deserts that we have on Earth uh, end up squeezing together and coalesce on the equator. And those wet regions get moved to higher latitudes, but only in a seasonal sense, like the monsoons on Earth. It's a great example of how climate, in this case, is very similar to Earth. It operates on the same principles, but Titan has its own take on the the way it's distributed in latitude. 
And just adding on to that, um, you know, that's a, a great point of how the Hadley cell is different and is partly perhaps responsible for why we see a lot of the surface liquid at the poles on, on Titan. You know, most of the lakes and seas are in the polar regions, um, especially in the northern hemisphere. But part of why we do this sort of incremental modeling uh, is to see what are the, you know, what are the different um, effects or uh, different features of, of Titan that, that may be responsible for these for these ideas. So it's possible that you, because you have lower topography in the polar regions, uh, and then if you have precipitation, that that runoff might be helpful in, in transporting the methane towards the poles as well. So that might be another factor. It's important to sort of keep in mind that Titan is itself a, a large system that's very complex and very much like, like Earth. And so we want to look at these different parts of that system, and we, we do that uh, by modeling. Sean's work is a great example of this approach of simpler is better. The boundary condition is at play here. So the surface boundary condition in our climate model had been up until very recently, within the last few years, the, the equivalent of a swamp, a global swamp on Titan. So the idea being that without any direct evidence otherwise, maybe Titan's surface is just wet everywhere. But we found that we weren't able to match the various observations of clouds and near-surface conditions observed by Cassini and ground-based telescopes with that boundary condition. Our collaborator, Juan Laura, and I decided to restrict the liquids at the surface to the polar regions north and south of 60 degrees. And what we discovered is that if you do that artificially in the model, the model will tend to build uh, liquid surface liquids back up at the equator. What we had to do is add in infiltration in the surface so that it, precipitation that occurs at low latitudes gets wicked away towards the, the subsurface table. Um, that was completely artificial, and that's the boundary condition we've been using for the last few years. That result directly motivated Sean's thesis project to add in realistic surface hydrology so we don't have to do this artificial thing of making the, the liquids at the surface disappear at the equator and keeping them only in, in the polar regions. That's UCLA planetary scientist Jonathan Mitchell. He and grad student Sean Falk will return in a minute with more about the weather on Saturn's moon Titan, including their speculation about what it would be like to stand in a Titanic downpour. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, this is Casey Dreyer, the Director of Space Policy here at the Planetary Society. And I wanted to let you know that right now Congress is debating the future of NASA's budget. The House has proposed to increase NASA's budget and also increase planetary science in 2018. The Senate, however, has proposed to cut both. You can make your voice heard right now. We've made it easy to learn more if you go to planetary.org slash petition 2017. Thank you. You can share your passion for space exploration by giving someone a gift membership to the Planetary Society this holiday season or any time of year. Your friend or loved one would join us as we nurture new and exciting science, advocate for space, and educate the world. The gift of space starts at planetary.org forward slash give space. That's planetary.org forward slash give space. Because, come on, it's space. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. My guests are Sean Falk and Jonathan Mitchell of UCLA. Sean is the grad student who served as lead author of a paper with dramatic conclusions about the climate on Saturn's big moon Titan. 
the frigid world that nevertheless resembles our own Earth in so many ways. Jonathan is Associate Professor of Planetary Science at the University, a senior author of the paper and Sean's mentor. What surprises you most about this model when you run it? I read that the uh, result uh, regarding the frequency of these really big storms was uh, kind of a surprise in itself. That, to me, was a big surprise, yes. I know that in previous conversations, for instance, Alex Hayes has pointed out that there's a, a huge amount of liquid available in the atmosphere in the form of vapor, uh, in methane vapor in Titan's atmosphere. So the quote is that if it all rained out, you would have a global ocean several meters thick, five mm. to seven meters thick or something like that, that would cover the entire moon. The problem with releasing that uh, or getting that vapor out of the atmosphere is that the atmosphere itself is so cold and dense, it's very difficult for that type of material to get rid of any heat that is produced in the atmosphere. And as we know, when, when liquids condense, they release latent heat. And even though the latent heat of methane is lower than that of water, it's still a lot of energy that's released, heat that's released into the atmosphere. And the atmosphere is just not very good at getting rid of that heat. If you just do back-of-the-envelope sort of calculations, you might expect these storms um, to happen every millennium or so because if a huge amount of latent heat is released, it will take a long time for that heat to be radiated back to space and allow the atmosphere to have the capacity to, to absorb another of those big latent heat release pulses. So to see them happen um, sort of every 50 Titan years may seem like a long time, but that actually isn't a very long time compared to what I expected. Does the model predict that there are, in addition to these really huge downpours, that there are lighter showers on a, on a more frequent basis here and there on Titan? Yeah, absolutely. We um we see those uh, particularly uh, in the in the polar regions. Actually, we we see that the most total accumulation of methane occurs in the poles, which is consistent with seeing the most lakes and seas in those regions. And so you do sort of have this sort of persistent, you know, small scale uh, precipitation events happening uh, in particular in those regions. Um, but the most intense events uh, happen uh, actually at the at lower latitudes, which is actually what surprised uh, surprised me more, is that you have in the mid latitudes in particular, where you have these really um, the sort of Hurricane Harvey level uh, level events uh, occurring, quite quite astounding to me to see that you didn't get the you, even though you have the most methane in the poles, you didn't get the most intense uh, events there. But you do yes, you do have that sort of persistent low magnitude events happening pretty much all over. Maybe this would be a good time to uh, talk a little bit about those so-called alluvial fans that I, I really love to see as I drive through the Southwest. Can you describe them for anybody who hasn't had that pleasure and, and why the ones on Titan have been so important to this work? Yeah, so these are um, large features produced by sedimentary transport. You basically have, after a large precipitation event, um, you have these sediments uh, that are transported down, uh, down gradient down slope, they sort of fan out in these cone shapes. Um, and that's what, what we observe as alluvial fans. Um, uh, they happen on Earth, and, and they're most observable in, in arid regions, but they happen in all regions on Earth, arid and humid. But on Titan, we've been able to detect them recently using the radar instrument on, on Cassini, and we actually uh, find that they're most prevalent in the mid-latitudes. 
we, we can see that from our precipitation uh, distribution, we see that the most extreme precipitation events are actually occurring in the mid-latitudes, right, where we see uh, these alluvial fans. So, you know, these alluvial fans cannot be created without um, heavy precipitation. There are other factors that go into their formation, namely what the you know, material is of the surface. But regardless of that, you still need this sort of intense precipitation event uh, to trigger that sediment transport and, and, and initiate alluvial fan formation. Uh, and so it's astounding that we see the alluvial fans in the same regions that we have uh, in our model have noticed where we have the most extreme uh, precipitation events. And so that's showing that you have this, just as on Earth, where you have that connection between uh, extreme precipitation and alluvial fan, between the, the climate and the surface, uh, you also have the same, from from our study, you have the same relationship uh, occurring on, on Titan as well. I've seen pictures of this, and it never ceases to amaze me how much it looks like what you see in in the southwest of the United States. But but speaking of that surface material, it's very different, isn't it? Are we are we talking about that hard frozen water ice that, that makes up these fans? I, I should say that we don't know for sure, but we think so, yes. We think it's we know that the the crust or the uh, lithosphere of Titan is made up of water ice. We we know that from the gravity measurements and the mass and the size and the meat density and so forth. The spectral properties of the materials in the observations that are available from Cassini and ground-based telescopes don't really tell us much in, in, the term, in terms of what the material actually is. So it's probably a mixture of stuff. It's definitely the water ice, but there's also something mixed in from that rains out of the atmosphere. In Southern California, we get smog development in the summer months especially, and this uh, process happens naturally in the atmosphere of Titan. And these uh, produce longer and longer particulate chains that then fi- finally rain out as this uh, smoggy soot. Uh, and that probably has uh, been going on for a long time and most likely built up a regolith of sorts, maybe a, a very cold, tarry regolith of some sort. We don't really know. I should mention also that the Huygens probe, when it landed on Titan, took pictures of uh, the surface. And what we see are rounded stones of several centimeters across that are almost certainly water ice pebbles that probably are, are sitting in a dry lake bed or maybe even in um, transiently filled regions that collect runoff as uh, these storms infrequently uh, fall on the hills that surround it. So we do know that there is uh, there are ice pebbles and so forth that are, that are moved around, but we don't know exactly what the surface is. The more I hear the more I think we've got to go back to this little world. Hmm. How do you feel about the recent uh, New Frontiers mission down select? Uh, it doesn't mean it's going to happen because there is competition still, but that down select included Elizabeth uh, Zippy Turtle's uh, Titan drone, which would have the ability to flit, fr- flit here and there on Titan. Well, for me, there truly are sirens on Titan because um, when I got started working on Titan in grad school, Cassini had just captured into Saturn's orbit and Huygens was getting ready to be released and land on Titan. And it was just too great of an opportunity as an atmosphericist uh, and planetary scientist to, to pass up. And I thought that, you know, naively at the time, I thought it would just be sort of a, you know, a way to learn about planetary climate. And I've been working on it now for the better part of 13 years. And, you know, as Cassini just wound up this, uh, its its final mission uh, this past year, 
I sort of had the sense, and the, the planetary community has the sense uh, that the focus, the spotlight moves to another object, and people sort of have to to be agile in the, what they work on. And so I was prepared to do that. But just to have another opportunity possibly coming up to go back to Titan sort of blew my mind. I was I was very excited about it. There's much more to be done on Titan, even with the Cassini data. But to have it in the public eye and to potentially have a mission returning, such an exciting mission, to me is just uh, yet another example of Titan calling me back. <laughs> Yeah, I would be I would be very excited about this mission because it'd be and it would really stoke public interest. I think um, just in the the sheer imagination of the idea alone, and and of course we get you know, some of the questions that we've been talking about today. We we get some uh, a lot better better answers to to some of these questions as far as getting closer to the surface and and seeing what the distribution is like of of maybe alluvial fan some more alluvial fans and seeing the surface material. Um, getting an idea of that and, and really being able to, to zone in on some of the, some of the, the smaller questions that, that, that we have and that relate to a very large degree to the, to the global climate and weather, weather of Titan. So I think I'd be very, very excited uh, about this mission. I think it's great. Sean, it sounds like you're kind of where Jonathan was about 13 years ago in your career since you're currently a grad student working with him at UCLA. Uh, and yet you are the lead author of this paper. How does it feel? I really do need to say and stress that this is a, a very collaborative effort, you know, not just with, with me and Jonathan, but uh, another faculty member here at UCLA, uh, Solgi Moon, who's a, a geomorphologist and really helped us out with, you know, understanding the connections between precipitation and how they are expressed on the surface. Um, that's, you know, and looking at some of the statistics that we do of, you know, what makes a, a, a rare ex- precipitation event and how do we get these probabilities. Um, that was really all, all Sulgi. She really helped us out with that. Um, and then, uh, of course, Juan, Juan Laura, as we've talked about, really developed this model and, and helped me out a lot with, with understanding how the model works and with understanding the, the connections also between um, between the surface liquid distribution and, and, and weather. And so this has really been an extremely collaborative effort, and I feel like we're all sort of co-authors on it. But, of course, it's, it's been great to, to have the opportunity to to go through through the publication process and and see what it's like and, and what's you know what reviewers are like and what's necessary to really make a, a strong um, and interesting uh, interesting paper. But again, I really need to stress the the mentorship that I've gotten from Jonathan Solgi and Juan. All it's been uh, it's been a really great great experience. Jonathan, it sounds like you're able to give Sean a, a pretty spectacularly valuable experience there. I um, should put the spotlight right back on Sean because um, he really is a fantastic student. He um, has done everything and more that I've put in front of him and really do anything he sets his mind to. So it has been a great uh, collaborative effort. I totally agree with Sean in that regard with our, our collaborators, Juan, Laura, and Solgi Moon. It is important, I think, for uh, students to, to have these sorts of experiences to lead a, a study it gives them the, the key experience and leadership that they will need in whatever career they choose uh, down the line. This was just a fantastic opportunity that, that really grew organically from the folks we have here. That includes especially Sulgi Moon, as Sean pointed out, our colleague here at UCLA, another faculty member. It's a delight to really be able to do this and, and uh, get some high profile sort of um, coverage of it as well. But I just can't stress enough how, how great it's been working with Sean having him here these years. 
I can't let you guys go without uh, sharing a little bit of uh, imagination beyond the science that uh, that you've been delivering. In case you've considered it, I certainly have. What would it be like to to stand in uh, the kind of big storm on Titan that your model says probably occurs maybe once every Titan year or so? I mean, would methane rain feel different hitting your spacesuit than than water? Yeah, Sean and I uh, were talking about this before uh, we got on the phone. It's a great question. One of the fascinating things about the way water behaves with uh, solids here on Earth is that uh, water is very, the water molecule has a high polarity to it. And so it makes it a very good solvent, things dissolve in it well, but it also makes it a good detergent, which means, which means it uh, sort of wets surfaces really well. And you see this on a, on a car windshield, for instance, or, or a window. When it rains, you'll see these streaks forming down the sides of the window as, as the rain falls. A fascinating difference between water, the condensable in our system, and methane, the condensable in Titan's system, is that the polarity of the methane molecule is much lower. That uh, will make it significantly less uh, effective at, as a solvent, depending on what the material is, but especially for solid materials. It would probably also make it less uh, of a detergent, which means that uh, when it lands on hard, solid surfaces, it would probably beat up as if uh, you had placed some sort of rain repellent on your car windshield or on your car, uh, waxed your, the metal on your car, the, the paint on your car. And you see these, uh, these beads run off very quickly. So Sean and I were joking that you probably, if you wanted to put windshield wipers on your, your visor or your, your helmet... <laughs> You probably want them on the inside rather than the outside because you would probably have uh, no problem getting the methane to wipe off the outside if it rained. But the inside would probably fog up pretty quickly because of the great uh, temperature difference with the outside and, your, and the water vapor that's you're expelling in your breath. Keep those defrosters turned on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely fascinating. I am really pleased that I, uh, that I asked you that question to close out this great conversation. <laughs> Guys, I, I just want to thank you and congratulate your entire team there at uh, UCLA on this great work. And uh, I look forward to uh, hearing more as you uh, zero in on what conditions are actually like on that, that amazing little world called Titan. Thank you, Matt. And thanks for the great questions. It's been a delight. Yes, thank you very much, Matt. Appreciate it. That was Sean Falk, graduate student in geology at UCLA. He's the lead author of this paper, which uh, we'll put up a link to, uh, at least you can read the abstract. It's called Regional Patterns of Extreme Precipitation on Titan, Consistent with Observed Alluvial Fan Distribution. It was published by uh, Nature Geoscience last October. And with him, his mentor, Jonathan Mitchell, UCLA Associate Professor of Planetary Science and a senior author of the paper. Jonathan is also the principal investigator of UCLA's Titan Climate Modeling Research Group. We're going to take a look at the night sky now, as we do every week with Bruce Betts. Time once again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We have the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society joining us. That's uh, Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Hey there, Matt. Good to have you. Before we get into the night sky and all that other good stuff, you know, I just talked with uh, Jonathan Mitchell and Sean Falk. 
People heard me ask that last question about what would it feel like to be in one of these monster downpours on Titan? A few days later, after the interview, I got a note from Jonathan, the uh, associate prof at UCLA, that he really has to think about this some more. He may have been too overconfident in his story about that. He says, uh, while it is the case that water forms streaks because adhesion is competitive with cohesion and that methane has a much lower polarity than water, apparently the adhesion is so low with methane, he said he really has to think about this and maybe do some laboratory testing or uh, molecular dynamic simulations. He said methane rain almost certainly behaves differently on glass than water rain, but I can't say for sure how right now. Glass, because he was thinking of the uh, the visors for the helmets that uh, astronauts are someday going to wear on that moon, right? You, <laughs> you, this gives me an idea that you should totally volunteer to go into the uh, uh, environmental chamber and have methane rain dumped on you. <laughs> and, and you can also record it. I would love to do that. I, I, of course, I prefer to actually be on Titan, where I've already volunteered to have the remote control for the drone if that uh, uh, drone gets sent to the, uh, to that moon. Believe but, me, uh, if but we I'll, could I'll... send you a billion miles away, we would. <laughs> <laughs> with a with a good internet connection, of course. All right, enough of that. What's what's going on up there? All right, let's start with the uh, the big unusual, which is a total lunar eclipse where the moon will enter completely into the Earth's shadow on January 31st. It will be visible from Asia, Australia, the Pacific Ocean, Western North America, although Eastern North America will get some of the partial eclipse before the moon sets, and Eastern Europe. The greatest eclipse time in UT is 13.30. For us, that's 5.30 a.m., for much of North America, the moon will actually set in eclipse in the uh, in the pre-dawn. That's the that's the big news. You also got planets in the pre-dawn sky, but uh, but lunar eclipse coming up is is what's super groovy. Yeah, and how how the the Earth enters? No, 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 no. You don't. We'll do that another time. All right. All right, we move on to this week in space history. It was 2006, 12 years ago. New Horizons launched on its way to Pluto and now on its way to a Kuiper Belt object. All right, we move on to random space fact. You know what? We we had somebody hinting that uh, we should get uh, your evil twin, E-Curb, on the show sometime, and it occurs to me that was almost E Curb's voice. We should do a what's up with E Curb someday. <laughs> we should indeed. <laughs> oh my God. He's somewhere. He's around. Closer than you think. Uh, speaking of twins, Gemini 8 was the uh, mission that had the first docking of two spacecraft in orbit, but also suffered the first critical in space. System failure on the U.S. spacecraft that made things exciting as as Neil Armstrong and David Scott started spinning and spinning and spinning. But it all worked out okay. First, how clever of you to uh, make that twins uh, segue. (laughs) (laughs) I have several random space facts just sitting around and I grab the one that makes the most (laughs) most relevant. Also, uh, we should note that it was uh, Neil's amazing performance, uh, basically saving himself, his partner in that mission, uh, that uh, helped uh, get him uh, the job of being the first guy to step on the moon. 
Dave Scott certainly uh, credits him with the amazing skills to stop their spacecraft from spinning. They were docked to an Agena upper stage of uh, from the rocket. That was that was the test uh, thing to dock to. We'll come back to space docking a little bit later on. Oh. All right, we move on to the trivia contest, and I'd asked you who had uh, who proposed the names that we all use for the Galilean moons of Jupiter. So Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. How'd we do? Well, I already told people two weeks ago that it wasn't Galileo. And there's a, there's a good story behind that. Bjorn Geta, a longtime listener in Sweden, who has not won the contest in, get this, six years, almost to the day, he came up with Simon Marius, was a very interesting guy, as it turns out, astronomer, mathematician, medical doctor in Germany, apparently working from a suggestion from Johannes Kepler, came up with those famous uh, names of of what we still call the Galilean moons. At least that's what was indicated by most of these answers. Is he correct? That is correct. Marius did this stuff, and we we heard from Jordan Tickton, by the way, that he may have started his observations of the uh, Galilean moons just one day after Galileo started to uh, make notes about that stuff. Uh, So he came up with these names, but Galileo was really unhappy about it, as we heard from a whole bunch of people, because Galileo had named named the moons after the Medicis, his, his patrons in Italy, and he refused to use those uh, names that uh, Marius came up with. So we got the Galilean moons, but but uh, Marius's uh, names for them, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. It's a fascinating story. Andres Ospina, a listener in Bogota, Colombia, uh, he makes a reference to the visitor uh, from Earth that is at uh, Jupiter right now. Not, not really looking at the moons, but uh, definitely looking at the planet. He says, Don't you feel a little bad for Jupiter, who for 400 years has been living with his four lovers, and now NASA has sent his wife to check on him? (laughs) Uh, Juno, for for anybody who didn't uh, catch on to that. Finally, the poet laureate of Planetary Radio, Dave Fairchild. Galileo tried to name the Medician stars and add that band of brothers to his patron repertoires, but he lost out to Marius who used the lady loves of Jupiter to name the moons that orbited above. Oh, Thank you once again, Dave, and uh, and everybody else. Uh, we do love to hear from you. I should mention, I suppose, that Bjorn is going to receive a Planetary Society t-shirt and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account uh, for use of that uh, worldwide nonprofit network of telescopes. And uh, we have more people now donating their uh, account, their free account that they're getting if they're a winner in the contest to uh, schools and astronomy clubs. And uh, so uh, they're very happy to uh, cooperate with that, the uh, the folks at iTelescope. Uh, and those are the same prizes we're going to have for this uh, next contest that uh, Bruce is about to begin. All right. Here's the question. What was the first in-space docking of two unmanned spacecraft? So two robotic spacecraft. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Good one. You have until the 24th. That would be Wednesday, January 24 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. We're done. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about concentric circles. Thank you, and good night. Like a wheel within a wheel. 
That's Bruce Betts. He's the uh, Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who brave the storm. Daniel Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Please give us an online rating or review. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.